Well, it's nice to see you all this morning. As um, there's a number of ways as people have started their holidays, we're going away next week. Hallelujah! For a short break around the country. Um, so, but it's wonderful to be here to worship God with you this morning, to give Him praise and glory, every glory thing due to his name. So let me just pray before we hear the word. Father, thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that we can know you in our midst. Thank you for the reminder this morning of your love for us, that you love every bit of us. What a joy, Jesus. And I just pray use my words, Lord, to speak into our hearts and our minds this morning that we would learn something new and fresh about who you are that will impact our lives, challenge us, teach us, learn, as we learn what it is to be a disciple, Lord, to be a disciple of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Wonderful. So we are continuing our, our series at the moment on dynamic discipleship. So we've been looking at the first half on who Jesus was, who the disciple maker is, and the characteristics of him. And now we've moved on to the second phase of now actually not just the disciple maker, but the actual disciples, the actual men that God called um, and that God equipped or began to equip on how to be disciples. And so we're going to be spending the next few weeks um, looking at these guys, looking at how, they, uh, how Jesus has equipped them and enabled them to be followers of himself, how they equipped them to be dynamic disciples, if you like. So this week, uh, we're looking at the humble disciples and the, um, this whole idea of what it is to be a humble disciple. And it's been quite a journey for me preparing this one because, you know, when you prepare this sort of stuff, I don't like to preach anything that I've not learned myself. And, and actually, I'm realizing actually how full of pride my heart actually is. So in learning about this, I'm having to sort of go, oh my goodness me, I'm not sure I actually want to learn this sort of uh, stuff. But it's wonderful, and I really hope that God will speak to you today about um, humility and how he calls all of us as followers of Christ to be clothed with humility. So I'm going to look at that with you today. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to look at um, two pieces of scripture from Luke, because we've been looking at Luke, we're looking through Luke to look about discipleship. And the first one, if you've got your Bibles with you, is in Luke 9. So Luke 9, as we heard last week from James, Luke 9 is a real turning point of the gospel where we go and we start to look at Jesus heading towards Jerusalem where he really looks to equip the disciples because he's coming to the end of his ministry. He's got three years of teaching them everything he, that he knows, well, that they need to know before he goes to the cross. So let's look at Luke 9, um, first of all, verses 46 to 48. Here we go. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who has sent me. For he who is least among you all 
He is the greatest. Okay, there we are. Luke 9. Then we're going to turn a few more chapters further on. In fact, Luke 22, we're going to look at next. And Luke 22 is very near the end of Luke's gospel. And Luke 22 is, in fact, just um, where the, uh, the disciples, it's, in fact, the day of unleavened bread. It's the Passover meal where the disciples, in fact, all of the Jewish people gather together. They're in Jerusalem and they gather together for the Passover feast. And so they were in this upper room and they'd been eating. And after they'd finished eating and um, had the, the last supper, as it were, with the bread and the wine, um, this happens. Verse 24, Luke 22, verse 24 to 30. Also, a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The disciples had known Jesus. This was the night before Jesus was going to the cross. And here they are, the disciples were arguing over and considering who is the greatest. So chapter 9, they are having this argument. And here we are, right at the end, they're still arguing about who is the greatest amongst the disciples. And this is what Jesus says to them. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom. I commission you. I give you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, just as my Father has given me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here we have two occasions in Luke where the disciples are considering or discussing or disputing, if you like, and arguing who is the greatest. To be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom was far too important an issue for these Christ followers. And this morning, I want to um, just spend a little while exploring why the disciples were so interested in who was the greatest, and then spend some time looking at Jesus' antidote to this. What is Jesus' antidote? We all need antidotes from time to time. And Jesus has got the best antidote ever. So basically, this is an issue of pride. And I would suggest that the pride is outworked in two ways. 
Firstly, the disciples desired to take what was good and make it their own. The disciples were suffering from a desire to take all things that they'd seen Jesus do. I mean, if we look at Jesus' ministry, he did a lot. He did a lot of healing, saw a lot of miracles outworked. And they'd seen a lot, we'd just seen in Luke 9, that the 12 had gone out and they'd seen great healings. They'd seen the power of God at work. And they did this in Jesus' name. But they wanted to be recognized for who they were. You know, pride desires us to be greater than what we are. Pride is a sense of oldness, that we deserve something in return for what we've done, or even what's been done to us. And I think we see in these two examples that the disciples were suffering from a severe case of this. Now in Luke 9, I mean Luke 9, I've been looking at Luke 9 quite a lot over the last couple of months. And just before this dispute in Luke 9, we have the, um, the transfiguration, which is basically where Peter and uh, John and James, they'd gone up a mountain with Jesus, and they'd seen Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. I mean... That would have been the most amazing sight to have ever behold. I mean, it's one of those moments that you just think, oh my goodness. You know, here is Jesus standing with Moses, this great man of the book of, you know, the Jewish history books, standing with Jesus. Elijah, this mighty prophet, standing with Jesus. And wow! You know, it would have been one of the most incredible scenes since, you know, the creation of the world even. Since Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. But the whole of Jesus' life would have been just, can you imagine the whole of creation would have been, you know, that's Jesus. You know, there's, there's a verse in the Bible, you know, the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You know, you can imagine all of creation going, oh my goodness, there's Jesus walking on earth, the king, the glorious son of God. And if you're a disciple and you see Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah, oh my word, oh my goodness. You know, and it says in the word that Peter then wanted to put a shelter up for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. You know, there's a sense of, oh my word, this is so good. So good. Let's do something about it. Let's make a shelter. He wanted to make something his own, which was not his to make his own. He wanted to put up a shelter. He started to think his way of doing things and his way of making it happen because it's good. It feels good. He wanted it to be that and be good. And he wanted to make it his own. The disciple has seen the kingdom at work. They went out preaching the gospel. They saw people being healed. God is good. But they wanted a piece of the pie. They wanted to know that they have something to do with God's purposes and plans. You know, there's something about all of us that we want to be successful at something. We want to be successful. We want to feel like our life matters. But when it's driven by the success 
rather than the success giver, then there's pride waiting to take hold of us. Because somewhere down the line, what we've done, we've exchanged the notion that everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. Two, actually, if it wasn't for me, this wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't something to do with me, this wouldn't have happened. You know, this wouldn't have got done. You know, the drive for success and ambition is all around us. You know, we live in one of the greatest cities of the world. I love living so close to London. You know, people come to London driven with ambition. But if you believe that you are where you are today because you got yourself there, then you're in danger, like the disciples in this passage, of thinking that you are owed something because of what you've achieved. You are owed something. I'm owed something. I'm better. I'm greater. I'm more significant than someone else because I've got myself to this place. You know, all the wonderful stuff that the disciples were experiencing was incredible. But the disciples were not satisfied with being part of it, with being part of what Jesus was doing. They wanted to take some of the credit. They wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to know who was the greatest. Am I the greatest? Am I the greatest? You see, the pride that the disciples are exhibiting is believing that they had something to do with their success, that they are the author of their success, that they have been going around healing people and actually... You know, actually, you know, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I can heal people. You know, for example, it's like, um, who likes classical music? Anybody like classical music? Wonderful, quite a few people. I like classical music. Now, I was going to get John to um, play a piece of music for me, but instead I'm just going to do it on my phone at the front here, and I'm going to see if this works. Okay. Now, imagine, okay, hopefully this won't be too stretch of your imagination, but imagine I'm a top class classical celloist. <laughs> so I've graduated from all the top musical academies and I've now going to perform to you all this wonderful piece of music. And I introduce my piece of music and I talk about it. I tell, I tell you how it took me years to compose. I wrote it and I made this piece of music. I'd written it especially for this occasion for you all now to enjoy. Are you ready? Imagine I'm holding a cello right now. All right, thank you very much. Can I have a round of applause? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, now you'd say to me, wouldn't you? You'd say, oh, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You didn't write that. That wasn't your piece of music. You see... Sometimes we want to take credit for things that actually aren't ours to take credit for. God takes credit for everything because he is good and he gives all good things to us. Success, is when it, when it becomes, when we own it, when we take pride in our own success, that is when we have a danger of pride coming in. Anyone know what that piece of music, who wrote it? Do you know, Michaela, you are just one top-notch person. You could be in my quiz um, <laughs> class when, when group yes not Tchaikovsky though Pachelbel's Canon was the uh, piece of music Tim Keller says this pride is when you look at your life and say I am the author of it 
when actually it is a sheer gift. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. He says this other thing as well. Pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. I love that. Isn't it freeing when you think to yourself, actually, God is the source of all my success. God, he is the source of all things good. God is the author. God owns the work. God owns, he's the the craftsman in my life. He's the author of my life. He's the one who who molds me, who creates me, who gives me all the good things. God owns the work, not you and not me. He owns it. He's the author. You know, all that the disciples did and all they eventually became um, to do was God's handiwork. It should always be attributed to God. But the disciples wanted recognition for what they had done. So, before I go on to my second point, and that is, um, I just want to spend a moment looking at the other side, the other side of the characteristic of pride, and that is, instead of taking everything good and making it our own, we can take everything that is bad and make it our own. You know, pride, which comes from our hard life, or a sense of, actually, I don't deserve it, I don't deserve good things, You know, if life is going well, it's easy to attribute good things to ourselves. Yeah, I did this, yeah. Life's what I made it. I work harder. I work smarter. I work better than other people. That's how I achieve. It's easy to see how pride is established. What's not so easy is when life is hard, when life hasn't actually gone that successfully, when you feel you're suffering more than other people, when life doesn't seem fair. When you feel you're having a harder life than other people, what does pride look like? Well, it comes in the form of, I want to earn it. I want to earn this gift, this life that God has given. And I won't take it unless I do something, unless I've done something to achieve it. I will reject it if I haven't had the opportunity to earn it. You know, there's still a sense of oldness. There's a temptation for pride to take root because there's a feeling of being owed something because you've suffered so much. I'm owed because of how I've suffered. I'd rather reject life than receive it as a gift. You know, it takes humility, the opposite of pride, to accept the life that God has given. And then go and make the most of it. Receive the life. Receive the life and go and do something with it. It takes trust. Trust in God. Trust in him. Trust and humility to receive from God, to receive the things that he has for you, to turn to him and receive the truth that he is good and he has good things for you. So the second reason I I feel in looking at this scripture, that the disciples wanted to know who who the greatest was. And that is that the disciples had developed a sense of entitlement. You know, the disciples had um, spent eight chapters with Jesus now. They got to know him. They got to trust him. And and even in this chapter nine, Peter had recognized Jesus as the Messiah the one who'd come to save the nation, God's holy nation. 
you know, they must have felt pretty chuffed that they had been chosen. You know, they'd spent this pretty much a good amount of time with Jesus now. You know, they must have developed a sense of entitlement. It's just that sense of, you know, we're one of the 12. We're one of God's elite squad. You know, we're one of the SAS of God's kingdom. We can go in and see God's kingdom come. We're Jesus' commissioned lieutenants. You know, they must have been pretty cool. How easy it is for pride to come in. You know, how many of us would found it difficult not to fall into the same trap? And, and just, as I, I just as I thought about this, I thought this might be, you know, the way that somebody um, who was proud might think as they were chosen by Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for choosing me for your elite squad. Wow, I'm one of your 12 special people. I must be amazing. You will not be disappointed, Lord. You've obviously read my CV, yes, I'm pleased to have noticed that you've seen my elite evangelistic techniques of bringing people into your kingdom, my quick-witted and razor-sharp sense of humor. Yes, Lord, you have made the right choice. Here I am. You know, it's so easy for us to think that we are something more than what we are that we've achieved what we've achieved because something is down to us. You know, the disciples felt like they were entitled to more. They wanted to know who the elite of the elite was. Who's the greatest? Let's have an argument about it. Who's the greatest amongst us? Who's done the most wonderful things? They were seeking greatness through rank, through importance and status. They felt entitled to status. They felt entitled to, to know that they were greater than another person within the, the group. They wanted recognition and position. But Jesus, the disciple maker, was very patient and keen to teach them that the kingdom of God does not work like that. The kingdom of God works very differently. And if they want to follow Jesus, if they want to know Jesus, if they want to know the king of creation, then there was a different approach. And now just in the last... 10 minutes or so, I want to explain and talk a bit about Jesus' wonderful approach and what the kingdom means. Firstly, he says, to be great in God's kingdom, you need to become like little children. And Jesus was referring to the fact that in this period of history, adults had little regard for children. They felt some sentimentality towards them and they cared for children, but generally, children were thought to be filled with foolishness. Children had no status whatsoever until the age of 12. They were thought of very lowly, and this is the very point that Jesus makes in this passage. If the disciples wanted to be great, which is what they were asking, they needed to become like one of those children. They needed to become people that didn't have status, that didn't have authority. You know, the only authority that Jesus asks us to operate is in his authority. You know, they, they were asked to be children. They didn't have any standing. There was no honor for children. To be great, Jesus has encouraged them to give up the notion of greatness as they understood it. 
Greatness not based on rank or position, but laying down our desires and taking up Jesus. Putting down pride and ambition and embracing Jesus, Saviour, Lord. Put down a sense of entitlement and pick up your cross and follow me. You know, radical, dynamic discipleship involves laying down everything for Jesus. Laying down everything for him, everything, our lives, everything to him. Now, he gives us things. You know, he's a good God. He gives us success in our workplaces, in our homes. But he's the source of all of that. It's a point of recognizing that everything we have is because of him. He's the author of life. He knows you. He knows what's best for you. And he wants to give you life. He wants the best for you. He wants you to know the true and living spiritual life. But it's, it's in Jesus that we find it. He is the source. You know, humility says that life is a gift. And I couldn't possibly merit any of it to myself. Everything's a gift. God is God over all things. Humility receives what is given and sees all good things as a gift from God. John Piper says uh, this humility asserts truth, not to bolster ego with control or with triumphs in debate, but a service to Christ and love to our enemies. It's not easy to give up complete control to Jesus and look uh, to him for every aspect of life. Humility is about receiving this wonderful gift of life as a gift, that everything comes from God. You know, if we feel we have an ounce or a micro ounce of control of our lives, then there's a temptation for pride to creep in. You know, that's been a, 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 the history of my life, the amount of time I want to take control of my life. You know, and pride can easily creep in. You know, we want to take ownership but as Christians, we've given our lives to Christ. He has ownership of our lives. As we trust him, as we walk with him, as we take on things that he gives us. You know, we want to take ownership. I'm owed this because of my standing, because of, because of my role, because of my responsibilities. I, I'm owed things, but no, we're not owed anything. Jesus has given us everything. God is in control. Humility receives life as a pure gift. Humility is a byproduct of trust and letting go and allowing God to lead our lives. And the second thing that Jesus says to the disciples is you need to become one who serves. One who serves. In Luke 22, as the disciples were enjoying the feast, in fact, little did they know this was the last time they would eat with Jesus. They argued about who was the greatest. You know, and interestingly, you know, we, most of us know about the, the Last Supper, but it, literally hours before they would have had this dispute, Jesus had washed their feet. Jesus had served them by washing their feet. Jesus, the, our great Messiah, our great King of Kings, was there on his hands and knees washing the disciples' feet. He has come to serve and he encourages us, encourage the disciples that they were to become ones to serve. And they did go on and serve as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. As they took the gospel 
into the, into the world. Jesus encourages his disciples to serve. To be great, they needed to become servants. You know, John 12, 26 says, Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. As disciples of Christ, we are called to serve. This is the calling that is on our lives. This is how we become great. You know, the disciples took Jesus' teaching encouragements and proclaimed the kingdom of God. Each one of them died serving Jesus. You know, they died making God's name great and making Jesus' name great. And I just want to share these words uh, again from John Piper. And he says this, we serve to make God's name great. We serve to make Jesus' name great. We serve to increase the view, the image, the vision of Christ's greatness, his greatness, not our own. This is true humility, believing in God through Jesus Christ. And the kind of service that makes God's name great is the kind that serves God by constantly receiving from God, constantly receiving from God as we go and serve him. 1 Peter 4.11 says, and this is again what John Piper is quoting, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You know, it's good to keep receiving from God. I really felt this morning as we worship, we received from him. We received again the truth that we are loved. Yeah, that we are loved by him. Keep receiving from him. Keep receiving the truth that you are loved, that you are special, that you are uniquely his child. Receive that consistently. Dwell on his word. Dwell on his truth that you are a chosen daughter or son of the living God. That's your standing in heaven. That's who you are. Keep receiving from God. He has ample supply. And actually, it takes humility to receive, to say, I can't do this on my own. God, I need you. Back to John Piper. God is seen as glorious when all our serving is moment by moment receiving from God's supply. We receive the supply by faith. That is, we trust moment by moment that what we need in serving him, he will supply life, breath, and everything. This is the opposite of being anxious. Such serving is happy, and it makes God look no less authoritative, but infinitely more desirable. This is the glory he means to have. The giver gets the glory. And what I, I love about Jesus' discipleship is his total trust in God, in outworking in God the Father, in outworking his purposes for these men. You know, these men really, you know, they don't get it, really. To, honestly, at this point in time, they're full of pride, they're full of uh, self, yet over time they become the dynamic disciples. They become mighty men that are sent from God, empowered to take the good news of the kingdom into the world. You know, he's still teaching them this night that he goes to the cross, that actually they're called to be like children. They're called to be ones who serve. Dynamic discipleship takes people where they're at, stands with them, 
and helps them walk closer to God. Are we able to do that for one another as God's church, as God's family? Discipleship equips, it empowers, it it helps us grow in who we are in God. It gets rid of the dross, gets rid of what's not true and fills our hearts with God's spirit and truth. I want to finish with this. Now, we have some wonderful news this week. We have a new prime minister. Some people are more happy than others. But it's, a, it's going to be a change for us as a nation, isn't it? Because we've got a new prime minister who's very different from Theresa May. Now, whether you hate him or you love him, I, I believe we have to have some level of respect for Boris Johnson. We, God calls us to pray for our leaders. He is now our leader of our nation. But I, there was something about his speech that he made when he sort of like um, became prime minister that really made me think, yeah, this, this, is, this is really good. I like it. He said this, and he was very clear. We're going to Brexit. We're going to have Brexit, Brexit done on October the 31st. We're going to take advantage of all the opportunities. It is going to bring in a new spirit of can-do. And we're once again going to believe in ourselves and what we can achieve. And like some slumbering giants, we're going to rise and ping off the guy ropes of self-doubt and negativity. I thank you very much for the incredible honor you've just done me. I will work flat out from now on with my team. and I'll build, uh, I hope, in the next few days to repay your confidence. Those were his words that he said when he found out he was prime minister. And I thought they were great words, very inspiring, very sort of, okay, yeah. You know, he sounds genuine. He's, he sort of instills hope and confidence that he might actually get the job done. You know, the great old-fashioned premise that politicians are serving the community, its constituents, and the country. However, for me, there was one issue with it. And this issue I had was his main conjecture is about believing in oneself. The problem with it was believing in me rather than believing in one greater than myself. Rather than believing in ourselves, we need to look higher than ourselves if we're going to achieve anything great. We need to look higher than ourselves in, this, than in our great nation. Believing in ourselves is not going to bring about success in our lives. Believing in God through Christ will be the way in which we ping off self-doubt. It is. That is the truth. It's Jesus that's going to equip us to ping off self-doubt and negativity. Because we put our faith and trust in something higher than ourselves, something steadfast, resolute, you know, through the generations that won't disappoint or give away. Now, that's not me making any judgments of, uh, of Boris. But it's a sense of, you know, we, we need to look to Christ. God is our source of strength. And when we do, we will find humility to be those who serve, to be those who look, to be those who are like children, allowing God's kingdom to come through us and through those around us. And I'm going to finish just with this last thing, please, if that's okay. G.K. Chesterton wrote this in 1908. And he wrote this, what he saw as the beginnings of the post uh, modernity society that we live in. Now, some, some people argue we live in a post-modern post society, but this is what he wrote in 1908. 
What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty, or that is the state of being unassuming in our own abilities, has moved from the organ of ambition and has settled upon the organ of conviction. That is the very things that we believe to be true. Where it was never meant to be, where it was never meant to be, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to insert, and that is himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, and that is the divine reason. The new skeptic is so humble that he even doubts he can even learn. The old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether. We are on the road to producing a race of man, too mentally modest and unassuming, to actually believe in the multiplication table. Just some closing thoughts as to where we are at this moment in time. As Christians, it's right to come back to recognizing that all things come from God, that life is a gift and he gives generously. As we live as little children, as we don't seek honor and glory for ourselves, but rather seek glory and honor for God, for Jesus' name to be lifted high and glorified. You know, recognizing what it means to be a servant. You know, what does that look like in your life? How can you receive Christ more in your life today as you might serve those around you with the love and grace that Christ has shown you? Amen.